0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. You all ready for this On WCPT 820.
1: Hello, it is Friday. You have made it through another week. Uh, I hope you have something exciting or satisfying planned for the weekend. I really hope that is the case. And for those of you, as I've said before, who work the weekends so the rest of us can... Uh, Go shopping and uh, buy our groceries, and if need be, if we end up in the hospital, get treatment. Uh, We appreciate you and everything you do. Thank you for that. (sighs) Right now, we're listening to final arguments in what seems like an excessively long trial to determine if uh, Fonnie Willis in Fulton County, Georgia... If uh, the short term personal relationship she had with somebody she hired uh, to work on the Trump case, um, whether or not that should disqualify her from pursuing this. Now, just because you may not understand the legal underpinnings like I didn't, those who want Fonnie Willis taken off. It isn't just, hey, she did this. She had a relationship with somebody who, br- a brief relationship with somebody on her team, and that's no good. No, you have to prove that, um, that Fawny Willis benefited financially, that somehow having, hiring her f- former boyfriend somehow, um, created some sort of financial windfall or financial benefit for her. And, um, you know, never say never when it comes to a judge or a jury, but it sure doesn't seem to me that that the people prosecuting this case have made that point. Oh, they have been lurid and they have wanted details. But actually proving that she did this... Like, so she somehow walks away with more money? In eh, no, I haven't heard anything that would lead me to believe that. Neh, neh, neh. We're going to do today what we do every Friday, and that is take your calls and uh, find out what you think were the most interesting or important or provocative stories of not only today, but also the whole last week. 773 763 9278 773 763 9278 you can call me on that line and talk to me live on the radio or you can shoot me a text uh, use that same phone number to to text me and i have our texting program open and i will be keeping an eye on those as they come through as always my first caller is jim from chicago hey jim happy friday
2: you too John uh, what's uh, on my mind is this idea that we're going to suspend reality the republican party wants to suspend reality they have a candidate who claims he won an election that he lost but to this day he has uh, uh, hearts and the Republican Party and his supporters will tell you that he won the election and I'm sure when he goes to his demise after he loses his next election, he'll also say that he won the election.
1: Without question.
2: question. I don't know how, why America has to suffer this Damage to our well, you know, part of the our... reason we're
1: suffering this damage is because Mitch McConnell didn't have the courage of his convictions to pressure his Republican senators to um, find Trump guilty of the impeachment he'd been convicted of and kick him to the curb. If those Republicans had joined with the Democrats and and put Trump on trial and found him guilty. Donald Trump would have been clearly legally unable to ever run for the presidency again. And now we've got Mitch McConnell with his tail between his legs, uh, scooting off into the sunset. And Donald Trump is as much a threat now as he was four years ago.
2: And Joan, I was disappointed with George Bush Jr. in many regards, but I really, his silence is deafening to me why he didn't come out against Trump. And say that the country is more important than this megalomaniac, or whatever you want, and whatever adjective you want to use this weekend. But I'm very disappointed in him. And uh, I'm just confident we're going to win this election, Joan, But we don't. We have to you, I don't know. You got the day's counted, my dear, and you have a and you have a terrific weekend, of you and yours, John. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jim. And uh, for anybody who is keeping count, there are 248 days until the general election. 248 days until the general election. Uh, There's a bunch of stuff I want to share with you, but before I get to that real quick, uh, let's take Brian's call. He's calling in from Chicago. Hey, Brian. Thanks for calling.
2: Hi, Joan. How are you? Good. 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 Uh, Last uh, Monday, you had a a guest uh, uh, discussing uh, a bit of Native American uh, history.
1: Yes, Tommy Orange.
2: And uh, I I, uh, took a course uh, on... uh, uh, Native American uh, philosophy of Native Americans did a paper on that uh, back in uh, 1982 uh, were part of my uh, master's degree in philosophy. And I just wanted to recommend uh, 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 really quick uh, uh, some books here that are really uh, really great books on Native Americans, uh, Sun of Morning Star. Uh, I got that in 1989. Uh, probably around June, I remember. An excellent book there. Uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and Black Elk Speaks. And uh, a couple films here. Uh, Little Big Man, 1970, and I Will Fight No More Forever, 1975, I Will Fight No More Forever, Uh, That's about the life of Chief Joseph and the uh, Nez Perce. And uh, I just wanted to mention, I have a uh, newspaper article uh, that was in the Joliet Herald News. Uh, According to the Associated Press, uh, actor, uh, that was Marlon Brando, uh, gave the title 40 acres of land he owned in the vicinity of Agora, California, to Hank Adams, head of the Survival of American Indians Association, and the uh, his uh, property that uh, Marlon uh, handed uh, gave uh, to uh, American Indians there. Uh, Survival of American Indians Association uh, was worth uh, in uh, December thirty first, nineteen seventy four. The article uh, worth one hundred and twelve. Uh, thousand dollars then so that's uh, marlon brando putting his money where his mouth yeah. was
1: yeah and i would also suggest uh there's a film out i think it's still in theaters but if not you can find it on streaming killers of the flower moon which is how um basically the coke family uh stole the oil that was on osage tribal land and it's the Killers of the Flower Moon is what happened uh, a few hundred years ago. Uh, and our good friend Greg Pallast has a documentary that is coming out this spring called Long Knife, the Osage Nation Osage Nation, Coke Oil and the New Trail of Tears. About It picks up where Killers of the Flower Moon leaves off and talks about what the Cokes did. The Cokes basically figured out that if they wanted to stay out of jail, because they very nearly went to jail, there was a prosecutor that was coming after them for what they had done to the Osage.
3: Uh They
1: figured out that to stay out of jail, uh, they needed to have judges who were either in their pocket or like-minded with them. And so they are a big part of this movement to create and nurture super conservative judges. It's just, it's really something. And when that uh, documentary finally comes out, I'll, I'll let everybody know. But um, thank you. Thank you for that call, and thank you for those recommendations. Um, well, well, that,
2: well, thank you, Joan, and uh, I thank you for uh, having, uh, discussing uh Uh, you know, the plight of uh, Native Americans. It was a genocide, and uh, as we all know, any uh, kind of uh, prejudice and uh, bigotry and and, uh, genocide is a terrible, evil evil thing, and I thank you for uh, keeping that in mind.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That was very nice of you to say, Brian. And the interview Brian is referring to can uh, be found... On our sound WCPT SoundCloud page, you look up the date for a Monday and then go to 4.30. It was an interview I did with Tommy Orange, who is a Native Nations author. He writes fiction. His last book called, was called There, There, and it was a one Chicago, uh, all Chicago reading together. I forget exactly what they call it. Um, and it was... Um, It was very well-received, and he now has a new book out called Wandering Stars. And it is fiction, but it follows the fallout of the Sand Creek Massacre and um, what happened at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. You know, not that long ago, we were reading about human remains being found on the grounds of Indian schools in Canada uh, in Canada, where young Native Nations kids were sent uh, away from their parents to be in these schools where they would be westernized, they would um, they would have their hair cut in a western way, they would dress in a western way, they would talk in a western way, and they would be basically, um, the idea was that they were going to just be absorbed into the culture, into the white culture because that, of course, was the only culture that anybody would want to be a part of. Uh, Again, the book is fiction, but sometimes fiction is a better way to tell a story like this, because it isn't just going to be a book that is um, a recitation of facts and dates. He makes the stories very human and the conflicted folks very human. Tommy Orange, um, the book is Wandering Stars. When I interviewed him, he'd already been reviewed uh, in the Wall Street Journal and in the Washington Post. And the day after we talked, um, he got an incredibly glowing review from the New York Times. So uh, thank you for that call. Um, I was talking about Mitch McConnell. Um, There was one sound clip. You know, Mitch McConnell has said, for those of you who missed it, that he is going to step down from Senate leadership in November, and then he is going to fulfill the rest of his term, just not being in leadership. And uh, his term expires January 1st, 2027. So we'll have a good two plus years of Mitch McConnell in the Senate. But um, that announcement led to a lot of people recalling the damage Mitch McConnell has done to our country, to our government, to the way we do things politically. Some people have referred to him as the Newt Gingrich of the Senate, Newt Gingrich, famous for turning the House of Representatives that used to, I mean, they used to be two sides, but they used to work together and they used to talk to one another and they used to go to the same dinner parties and cocktail parties after they finished legislating. And Newt Gingrich really created a them and us mentality in the House of Representatives, something that um, Mitch McConnell really did in the Senate. I shared with you a, a number of people's comments, but one thing I didn't get to share with you was former Senator Claire McCaskill talking about Mitch McConnell On MSNBC, she was chatting with Nicole Wallace, and um, I wanted to make sure I shared this with you. So listen to Claire McCaskill.
4: Claire, we are so often hostage to the laws of relativity, right? The brain has to adapt to the less awful scenario. And so I think in these times, McConnell became less scary than Ted Cruz and Hawley and the others that we're, that we're talking about. But, but the truth is McConnell suffered a, a special, extraordinary humiliation at the hands of Donald Trump when Donald Trump went after his wife with racist attacks on true social. I'm not going to amplify them here, but it was in the wake of the heightened hate climate around Asian Americans. Donald Trump attacked Elaine Chao, who served in Donald Trump's cabinet, McConnell wouldn't defend her. I mean, there was, on top of acquiescing to an agenda that he said today he didn't completely agree with all the time, there was a personal
5: humiliation to being Mitch McConnell. You know, sadly, Mitch McConnell stands for the proposition that sometimes the desire for power overwhelms everything to such an extent that you lose your North Star, and to me, when you're your wife, does you yeah. need a North Star to defend That's, your wife? Exactly. I mean, what other North Star could there be that you would allow someone to trash your spouse? You know, Holly uh, uh, Cruz did the same thing, right, um, about both his father and his 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 wife. <laughs> true. Um, so it is. And really, yes, Mitch McConnell said what he should have said. He should have voted to impeach him. Mm-hmm. He said what he should have said after. What happened on January 6th? But how many times did Mitch McConnell swallow what he thought mm-hmm. in order to hold on to power? Mm-hmm. How many times was his gut telling him, This is wrong? This guy how many meetings was he at in the White House when he knew this is a man who has no idea what he's doing? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to do things that are against our Constitution and against what's normal? How many times did he put up with that and say nothing? That really is his legacy. He is the midwife of Donald Trump because he allowed it, along with a lot of other Republicans in the Senate who knew better. They let this morph into the monster it is today.
1: Amen to that. People, and I must say, I'd like to count myself among them, are crossing their fingers that now that he has nothing to lose and, frankly, nothing to gain, that maybe he will fight for the things he believes in, at the very least, that he will fight for aid for Ukraine and um, be a staunch opponent of Vladimir Putin. But who knows? Um, Mitch McConnell has always done what is best for Mitch McConnell. And um, we have no reason to think that that is going to change. (sighs) Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Bill is calling in. From the north side. Hello, Bill. Thanks for joining the conversation today. What's your question or comment?
6: Ah, uh, come on, Joan. You know it's Phil by now. Phil? Phil from the north side.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh... <laughs>
6: That's all right. That's all right. Listen, I wanted to talk about the whole third party thing and this uncom- comm- uncommitted voting. And uh, I... Uh, a guy uh, uh Carlos elzo rocky is a comedian a brilliant comedian and uh, uh a very astute human being as well and he he just coined it so perfectly uh, he says that voting third party or uncommitted in a general election is like pouring water on a grease fire hmm don't Don't pour water on a grease fire. I also wanted to mention, there's a guy, this Mohammed Fahim, with the lightning strike show. I think he's kind of sneaking under the radio there, under the radar there, because he has a show on early Sunday morning. I was listening to him last week, and he's actually pushing for a third party. His exact oh. verbatim words were that there are Democrats now thinking about forming a third party to run against uh, Joe. He also said that he he repeats a lot of right-wing talking points. I, I don't know if he gets his information from the Young Turks or Jimmy Dore, but I call in a lot to confront him on this. And, uh, I mean... It, it's unconscionable uh, at this point. He takes a lot of ages shots at Biden, too. And he does always say, well, you know, we need to vote blue. We need to vote blue. But then on the other hand, he's slamming Biden all the time. And, there, and unfairly, too. Again, he, he uses um, a lot of the right wing, same uh, venom toward, you know, he's, again, it seems like almost like a John Stewart with a guy with an extra grind. Um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I did call in and, and, and you know and, and try to talk to him, but, but I mean, we've seen, uh, yeah, uh, first off, Putin and Netanyahu are are doing everything they can to get Trump reinstalled <laughs> again. Yeah. So,
7: oh, absolutely. How is? How is
6: trying, you know, how is forming a third party which would shave off enough votes to put Trump in office, how is that going to help you? That's what people, that's what we have to
1: make sure people understand. Um, A vote for a third party, you know, isn't. It's You're not creating a viable third party. A third party candidate is never, at least in this election, is never going to have any impact. Is never going to win. But a third party candidacy is, is going to affect the outcome. And it, it, the th- it always chances are, the
6: opponent wins. It,
1: yep, exactly. Look at. Al Gore and George Bush, what would have happened if Ralph Nader had dropped out of the race? Ralph Nader, the Green Party candidate, if the maybe those people wouldn't have voted at all. But those who voted were sure as heck not going to vote for Bush. They would have voted for Gore. We could potentially have had President Al Gore, if not for Ralph Nader. And anybody who thinks that voting third party is going to send a message Oh, my God. Well, you know, you're going to be the recipient of the message, and you're not going to like it if you get Trump elected. It it might. It might. It absolutely might. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's terrifying.
6: Am I still on here? Can you hear me? (laughs) Yeah, I
1: can hear you. Go ahead. Okay,
6: so the, and then also this same guy, Fahim, on the lightning strike, a few weeks earlier was talking about, was angry about our tax money going to Ukraine to help Ukraine against Putin. So, I mean, whose side is this dude on? Seriously. Mm-hmm. He, he's, you know, and I want to express that my heart goes out to the Palestinians and Palestinians. Uh, Being killed, it must be horrific to be a Palestinian-American and know that your tax money is going to Netanyahu, and he is, you know, doing what he's doing, some terrible things. Although you cannot also forget that Hamas declared war, first off. You know, we had a, a horrible situation in World War II where our military intelligence knew where death camps were. Being run by the Nazis, and we were faced with the decision: do we do we blow up the death camps and kill everybody in the death camp, and save more lives that were headed towards the death camp? You know how there was a, you know, when when people declare war, horrible horrible things happen, and unfortunately Hamas is in charge of what goes on with Palestine. So I, I'm not trying to take a side here or anything. It's almost like the movie Unforgiven where there's no hero, you know. But I love that movie because it really blurs the line that the sheriff is, is arguably worse than the outlaw assassins coming into the town. You know, it's yep. it's a horrible situation. But to put all the blame squarely on Biden's shoulders is is completely unfair.
1: It is, I understand it is, it's giving, Like, you know, it's giving Biden credit. Biden can pressure. He can, can he can cajole. And some people are like, well, there shouldn't be any aid to Israel at all. And that's just not tenable. That yeah, is absolutely well, that is absolutely not fallacy, going to work so for anybody. And you it's know the
7: sign
6: off jealousy
1: and and Joe Biden, I believe, is doing what he can. I don't think Joe Biden likes Benjamin Netanyahu any more than you do and any more than I do. And I think he's working really hard to make something happen. But the people who are like, somehow Biden can bring this to an end if he just does X, y, or Z. That, that's just not right. That's just not reality. That's just not the way the world works. Um, we've got to we got to take a break here. But, Phil, thank you so much for the call. I uh, appreciate it. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive. WCPT 820.
1: On uh, cable news, I think this was from MSNBC um, yeah, because it was on Morning Joe. So uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brezhnevsky, um on MSNBC, they, uh, they they do this every once in a while. You know, like if somebody is uh, claiming they take a certain position on an issue and in the past, They have espoused the exact opposite position over and over again. They'll put together a montage. Oh, so-and-so says they support this. Well, listen to what they've said over the last five years. Um, They put together a, a montage of statements showing the contrast between Donald Trump and Joe Biden when it comes to the border And what the message they want to convey to people about the border is. And what they want to do with respect to the border. Because remember, we had um, dueling border visits uh, the other day. They were both there the the same time. And they have put together Biden-Trump, Biden-Trump, Biden-Trump. And I think you will find the contrast between the attitude... The, the tenor, the way they express themselves, to be significant. Listen to this.
6: I understand my predecessors Nagel past today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Join me, or I'll join you, in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. The United States is being overrun by the... Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. There's no red state or blue state where I come from. They're just communities and families looking for help. This governor, Newsom from California, isn't that his name, Newsom? Uh, what he's done to California is unbelievable. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? But this is a Joe Biden invasion. Horrible crooked Joe is... The blood of countless innocent victims. Compromise is part of the process. That's how democracy works. That's how it's supposed to work. We did much better in 2020 than we ever even thought about doing in 2016. And very bad things happened. We worked for the American people, not the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. We worked for the American people.
1: Catch the difference there? One is what you would call a statesman, and the other one is what? He is what he is. He's a shuckster. He's a shyster. He's a con man. You know, (laughs) go buy some Trump water and get on a Trump airliner wearing your Trump tie after you've gone to Trump college. Oh, wait, none of those things really exist anymore. They all went out of business. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ike is calling in from South Carolina. Go ahead, Ike. How are you today?
2: Meow. Hey, Joni. how are you?
1: Pretty good.
2: Yeah, hanging in there, I hope. Oh Listen, let's get something straight. I'm getting tired of hearing this. Biden didn't open up the border. They no. keep talking about Biden opening up the border, and he that's, reversed the Yeah, that's a uh, Fox Trump's talking policies. point.
1: It's nonsense. Oh, Biden opened up Trump's the borders. Top. Thousands of people have been running across into the United States. Actually, Trump, no. Trump's, Actually, no.
2: Trump. Trump's policies were overturned as unconstitutional, by the court. He couldn't keep them in Mexico indefinitely. That was a lie. he, he sits there and tries to act like Biden just flipped the switch when he got in office number two. Besides that, okay, look, I'm all for legal immigration, okay? And I think we could fix it if they just sit down and negotiate a comprehensive bill and get it done. But here's the thing, I've got a niece that goes to the University of Georgia. And, yeah, I am upset that that girl got murdered, and I am upset that fella had been deported before and came back. Now, here's what I want to do, and this goes right in hand with guns, and I'll I'll tie the two together, okay? From now on, what I would like to see is if somebody gets killed with a gun that's been stolen, I want it traced back to that owner. And if it got stolen out of their car or, you know, they just left it laying around Willie nilly, they need to be held responsible for it. The same way that when it comes to illegal immigrants like that guy that killed that girl there, I want to know who employed him. Where was he getting paid? Where was he working? I want that person named. And just like with the handgun, I want some responsibility brought to that good, fine, upstanding American citizen. Because to be honest with you, when they commit murder, as far as I'm concerned, you're aiding and abetting. You're involved because you're the one that hired them. You're the one that paid them. You're the one that enabled them to be here in the first place. Okay? So... You know, personal responsibility, I think that's a big draw for the Republicans. I don't see why they, uh, you know, uh, they wouldn't bring a little personal responsibility to this whole thing. And Because I can promise you this, us workers that worked all our lives, you know, and the workers that are still out there, we're not the ones that are bringing them over here and paying them. We're not the ones that are wanting them to come here and and, and drive down wages and, and, and do the things that they do. We just want an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. We want union jobs. God forbid we get that. And, oh, by the way, Mitch McConnell, i gotta I got to put a plug in on him, too. Just remember something. Every piece of legislation that's been passed has gone through his hands since mm-hmm. 2008. Okay? I'm sorry, since, yeah, 2008. That's when he took over, okay? And he was right there with Jim Wright when Citizens United went through. He's been right there for every piece of crap that they've passed and everything they've done to this point. And you're telling me he didn't pack the court? I mean, he packed the court? Yeah, he did. But let me ask you something. If any other judge acted like uh, uh, Clarence Thomas or Alito, where they've been found out to be taking money on the side... Any other judge, you'd have a hearing and you'd pull him off the bench. And I don't see where the Supreme Court should be any different. If you broke the law, just like this guy, just like this garbage with Trump about immunity. No, 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 no. If you're a criminal or you commit a criminal act while you're in office, you have you have to be prosecuted, period. You're not above the law neither is the Supreme Court. So I don't see why the IRS or somebody doesn't go after Clarence Thomas and the rest of them clowns that are taking money, just like Kavanaugh. Somebody tell me this, who paid off Kavanaugh's $2 million debt just before he became a Supreme Court justice? Nobody's ever told us who that was and who paid his bills. These people are in people's pockets, and Sheldon Whitehouse is the guy to do it. I'd take him and have him oversee the DOJ hit squad. The IRS get everybody involved and go after these people and get them removed.
1: Yeah, um, I really hope that in 2024, if we can build up enough of a Democratic majority in the Senate and in the House, and if we keep the White House, I think we could get some court reform pushed through. I not, the, not that not that I think we even need to rely on our legislators. I think people are going to demand it because I agree with you. If, if not completely corrupt, they are at best completely partisan. Well, one of the experts, I think it was Ellie Mistal, referred to them as six Republicans in robes. He said they're not conservatives and they're certainly not impartial jurists. They are six Republicans in robes, and I think that the American people are sick to death of them I know I am I know I am and I uh, so let's make sure we get a bunch of turnout let's make sure we have enough power to reform the Supreme Court when um, 2025 rolls around thanks Ike thank you so much uh, for the call let's go to Debbie who is calling in from Old Town hey Debbie how are you hi Joan how are you today Pretty darn good. <laughs> good. You sound you sound like you're on fire.
3: Um, <laughs> um, I am so glad that you are at least addressing some of the migrant situation that's happening right now in our country. But what I wonder is, why hasn't anybody done, I think lately I've just been reading a lot about this, why hasn't anybody done a deep dive into how essential Immigrants are to our society, especially right now. We have a declining population, and we have an aging population. And what immigrants bring to society is a stronger middle class, over a trillion dollars in, in economic, um, in, 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 in economic provision. They pay taxes. They work. So many of them are educated.
1: So many of them are entrepreneurial um, yep. and just add so much to They society are the engine and, that keeps our economy and, uh, going. And, you know, it uh, is it is really the way our country is set up. We have an appetite for new residents. We have an appetite for migrants. Our country absorbs them and uses them and needs them. And, you know, it's just... It's just the way they did with abortion. Republicans have created a boogeyman. Oh, you know, if we don't stop, if we don't close the borders, all these people are going to they're going to drain the economy. They're going to be, you know, we're going to have to pay for them and support them and feed them. And they're not going to put anything back. And that means there's not going to be money for you.
3: It's just the opposite of what's, what the reality is. Yep. And those are the myths that are presented to us. And and I propose to you, could you do a major show on how important immigrate, immigrants are to our society and, and quote statistics and bring people on that talk about it and really, really show us You know, the other side, because it's not even an other side. It's just misdebunked. And it's really important, I think, to the media to put their finger on this scale and let people know exactly how how essential they are to our society.
1: Yep. You know, there is a um, uh, Kate... Uh, lincoln Goldfinch um, or is it goldfinch lincoln i get sorry her hyphenated name confused she is an immigration attorney uh, based in Austin Texas and when i have had conversations with her and i haven't booked her for a while i'm going to reach out and see if she can if she can spend Good. some time but she has Good. all of those facts and figures at her fingertips Good. but I, I and i hope learning those kinds of Facts and figures will influence people. But she told me now, again, she lives in Texas. She was asked to make a presentation, I don't know, to a rotary group or some um, some local group like that. And she said she knew that this was a really conservative audience. So she came to arm with all the data. And when she was finished, you know, she basically she talked to a few people and it was like she didn't change a single mind in the place she said she just she couldn't believe it that presented with this is these are the actual figures this is where they go this is what they do um this is the social services that they're that they utilize and this is what it costs and this is what they contribute she said there was essentially they told her you know all that's really great but but like people don't care about the facts and figures. They care about what they feel. And if they feel that migrants are a threat, that's all that matters to them, even when they're presented with evidence that their feelings are not based in reality. So we might try to do that, but I'm not sure, based on just what Kate has told me, whether those kinds of presentations really sink in. But I suppose it's worth a try, right? Yeah, and the statistics are there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely,
3: I mean, they're there. One point, one point two trillion dollars is what they add to our economy, and 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 all these other things are just mythical. You know what they're saying is just mythical. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah,
1: well, that's a good idea. I mean it. Um, Because of the audience that this radio station engenders, it might be preaching to the choir, but there's no reason why we can't have the facts and figures at our fingertips, especially when we meet with friends and family members and neighbors who um, have a wrong idea about things. Good idea, Debbie. Um, I'm going to see if we can get Kate to come back and really go in to this in a, in a way that's really understandable and really clear and that we can all take something away from. That's a great idea. Thank you for the call. Thank you so much. You're you very welcome. Weekend. Let us go to uh, Bobby. Our Indiana correspondent is on the line with all the news uh, from, <laughs> from Indiana. Bobby, how are you? Hey, I'm glad to hear your
7: boy is, uh, Getting on the mend. Yeah,
1: my son, for those of you who don't know, he had a second surgery on his arm uh, this Wednesday, but it went really well, and he's recovering faster than he did last time, which is to well, say that it'll maybe be three months instead of five.
7: Yeah. Joan, let me tell you something. If I owned both hell. And Texas, I would rent out Texas and live in hell.
1: Okay, I'm okay with that.
7: Yeah, that's but that I didn't originate that. That comes from uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman, and he was there, and he ought to know. But uh, I just thought that was fitting these days.
1: Yeah. Well, I've said, you know, I've said before, every once in a while, there's a state legislator in Texas that says Texas should secede from the United States. And I used to say that I would only agree to that if they agreed to take Florida with them. But I think we'll hang on to Florida for a while. Now, um, I will only agree to it if they take Alabama with them.
7: I, uh, I lived in Florida for several months. And believe me, they can take Florida with them.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. I well, got no, I maybe got they have no to take to both. But anyway,
7: they'll have to take both. But um, you know, another little thing that bugs me—maybe you would know—if frozen embryos are actually little kitties, okay? Mm-hmm. So if we if if we were to take some of them home and put them in our freezers and they would send us a check every month for keeping them in our freezers would we then become foster parents oh bobby i don't i don't, hey think, i i don't know i don't understand all of this republican crap all well, of you know that uh but there's uh one thing i would like to get out there if i may go ahead and he, um that if uh, you happen to be a resident of LaPorte County, Indiana, uh, you should call the LaPorte County Courthouse, get a hold of the operator, and have her transfer you to voter registration, and they will set you up for vote-by-mail And if that's the way you want to vote, get a hold of them now so we can get that all in and through the mail system. Yeah,
1: because, you know, it doesn't do you any good to get a mail-in ballot if uh, you can't get it back in time to be counted. And most places, as long as it's postmarked no later than the day of the election, you're okay um or if it really if you do get a mail in ballot and um you want to and it's and it's too late to mail it back take the mail in ballot with you when you go to vote at the polls because you have to give it back to them because otherwise they're worried that you will try to vote twice so you know i love voting by mail it gives me time to really look over everything it gives me time to do some research you know i was just i spent um half of yesterday and the day before researching judicial candidates because, you know, we don't we don't know. And so I was looking at the different recommendations and Justice Watch and the Bar Association and the um, LGBTQ Bar Association. And um, that kind of information is really important to make educated uh, decisions on this on this kind of thing. And I love the fact that A mail-in ballot gives me time to do my research and think about things. Plus, uh, I don't like leaving the House, so that's a good one, too.
7: Yeah, particularly on this election, I think everybody should do that as soon and early as they can. So they'll have more time and can get that in there back uh, in plenty of time so that it doesn't uh, languish in the postal system, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely, Bobby. Are you voting by mail?
7: Well, as I tell everybody for some years, I've had to do that because standing in line, I have a tendency to topple over like a tree.
1: <laughs> yeah.
7: Uh, health issues have caught up with me. And uh, so I started this thing and, and, and it has been wonderful ever since I started. I I, I can't see why more people don't do
1: it yeah yeah once you once like in illinois you can sign up for permanent vote by mail i don't have to do anything I i don't have to contact them i just wait till it shows up in my mailbox and it's it is such um It's one thing I don't have to worry about. It's one thing I don't have to remember to do on my, you know, like what date is it? Oh, my God. You know, where's the early polling? Did I get there? What are the times it's available? How long is the line going to be? Oh, my goodness. Just having all of that to not worry about is makes voting so much easier. So much easier.
7: Unfortunately, here in Indiana, we we still have to, you know, call in ahead of time to get that, you know.
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's too bad.
7: Yeah, but uh, but it's just make that one call and uh, and they get you the paperwork and then you go from there. And sh- now I'm not sure that's for the uh, primary. I can't recall if you have to call again ahead of time for the general. Uh, I can't I can't remember my 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 tiny little brain is not bringing <laughs> that back up to me. But
1: uh, well, go, <clears throat> I'm expecting them. you to do that research. And uh, be able to share with the rest and, of our Indiana listeners and, and, if they have to go through yeah. the process again.
7: Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna bug them again. I'm gonna, I am uh, going to buzz their tower, as the <laughs> old saying did, and uh, and uh, get that information, and I will uh, pass it along your direction.
1: Thank you. So you Thank you very again. much. Thank you very okay. much, Bobby. Okay, you have a great You're weekend. You too. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Okay. We have let's see, I think oh, yeah, we have time. Um just double checking to make sure that we still have time. Let's um let's take Andrew's call. I'm not quite sure where you're calling from, Andrew. Um where are you calling um, from?
2: I'm calling from Naperville.
1: Naperville. Okay. Yes. Thanks for calling in. I'm, uh-
2: yeah, I wanted to make a, a comment about the immigration situation and uh how it relates to Joe Biden reelection. I um I listened to McColler saying uh the benefits of um many immigrants, but um they're not I, I feel that uh other countries are um taking uh hello?
1: I'm here. I'm here. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, other countries are taking. Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember in 1980 when Fidel Castro uh, released a whole bunch of boat people and sent them to Florida when mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter was president. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of them were criminals. Oh, or, yeah. He uh, opened
1: up people. the mental institution and the prisons. Yeah. Because, you know, President Carter kept saying that he thought that people who wanted to leave Cuba should be allowed to leave Cuba. And uh, so Castro arranged for transport of all the people that he wanted to get rid of from Cuba. Yeah.
2: OK, I feel other countries are taking a page from Castro's playbook and just getting the people Um, that are not necessarily, uh, would be a first choice, uh, to allow into this country. I mean, I remember I was working at an immigration center and I was teaching Haitians and I was told they're very, they're particular on, uh, on who they were allowing in, even though it was a big influx of, of Haitian people. They, uh, they were very careful that they wouldn't let someone in who might um, might be a problem. And um, even though I'm glad I, I could never turn anybody away um, if I had to I'm glad I don't have to make that decision.
7: Um,
1: well, I you feel know, that, my, uh, my understanding is that a lot of the people who are legally trying to become residents are doing so through asylum, where they have to prove that they were in danger. And they are also investigated. And people who are known criminals are generally not allowed to claim asylum. And if somebody has um, a criminal record or if they commit, even frankly, sometimes a very small crime here in the United States, they're deported. They're they're deported. So it's not like before where um, where Jimmy Carter, you know, sort of felt like he was welcoming um, all of these, um, you know, Cubans who wanted to escape. And then we discovered that um, we were getting the people Fidel wanted to get rid of. I mean, most of the people we're we're seeing now aren't being sent by anyone. They're coming on their own. And if they don't meet the criteria, they are sent back. I mean, people don't realize that one of the presidents who deported us people at the highest numbers was Obama. I mean, this isn't um, this isn't just a Republican thing. And you know, and there've even been people who help migrants. Have sometimes complained that the rules are too strict. That even if somebody is convicted of a of a misdemeanor, that they're sent back. But you know, the the oh, rules are there.
7: I wanted to, Go ahead. I wanted to quickly because then a time's running out.
2: How this affects Joe Biden? Um, Joe Biden. If I were a Republican, which I'm not, I would want to run against Joe Biden was any time
7: in the news. And uh, somebody
2: is shot or killed by someone who shouldn't be here in this country to begin with. That is that gives free um, a, a boost to the Republican Party against Biden or questioning his ability to be president. And I feel that um I, I feel that maybe and this is just a thought. Come this summer, uh, the, Repo- the U.S. Democrats ought to hunker down and say, all right, let's take a chance
7: and nominate someone
1: else, someone who, someone who is under 60. I mean, I know this will you know, happen. Uh, first of all, but we're but really I- late getting to the news, so I've got to wrap this up. But Joe Biden yeah. has said that he's the best person to defeat Donald Trump. And I think that if for some reason Donald Trump isn't the Republican nominee, then we might see Joe Biden step aside. But he's made it clear: as long as Trump's in the race, he's in the race. We have to take a break for news. We're way late. We'll be back after this.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, yeah! Take it away, it's going to be a bumpy ride.
1: Whoa, that's an explosive sentence.
0: On WCPT 820.
1: It is Friday. Did you need to be reminded of that? Had you forgotten? I bet not. <laughs> it is Friday, and we always spend uh, the first half of the broadcast just you and me talking, taking calls. I do want you to know, though, um, for the from 3.30 to 4.30, we are scheduled to be talking to uh, campaign advisor and strategist, Peter Giangreco. Uh So if you have a desire to be a part of that conversation, feel free uh, to call in during uh, the next hour um, after we wrap up this, this special time that you and I have together. Uh, Before I go back to the phone lines, I want to share something. Um, MSNBC anchor Nicole Wallace is preparing a big show on American autocracy, this rising movement that is seemingly paving the way for a fascist or authoritarian regime to take over our country. Man, I never in my life thought I would say words like that. She has been interviewing a bunch of people. She shared uh, some clips on her show. And, you know, I was talking earlier in the week about how <laughs> women are really stepping up against Donald Trump, whether it's Fonnie Willis or Letitia James or whether it's Cassidy Hutchinson or... um Sarah Matthews, who's his former deputy press secretary, women are standing up and speaking out. And you know what? It would, as um, Jen Psaki said, it sure would be nice if um, some of the more prominent men who also know Donald Trump well would uh, start speaking out. But maybe that'll come anyway. Anyway. Nicole Wallace interviewed Sarah Matthews, again, Trump's former deputy press secretary, somebody who testified during the January 6th hearings. Um, She was one of the people that Nicole Wallace has interviewed for this um, show that she's doing on the rise of basically the rise of fascism in this country. And she specifically talked to Sarah
4: about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Listen to this. I want to ask you what he cares about, because I remember when Stormy Daniels' book came out, I got not one, but two people telling me he was really disturbed by her describing his body parts. I mean, people try to attack him on policy. He doesn't care about them. He cares about his hair. I mean, that was also in the Atlantic piece. He didn't want to go out in the rain because he likes his hair. And again, um, I can't imagine that, but I guess he does. Um, he cares about his weight. He cares about his wealth. He cares about his, you know, body. I mean, how do you go after someone who doesn't care about defending the democracy? He doesn't care about the Constitution. And, and I mean, Joe Biden figured it out. Joe Biden beat him. But what thoughts do you have in seeing him vulnerable and how someone
8: should defeat him politically? No, you're correct. He has absolutely no shame um, when it comes to any of those things like his policies or him not caring about the Constitution or anything. He's very vain, cares about his appearance, cares about his looks, um, you know, and I think that. Which is amazing because uh, I heard he really does eat bacon cheeseburgers every day. So, yes, tomato, <laughs> tomato, I guess. Exactly. I think that uh, President Biden has done a great job of talking about this case for democracy, because obviously we saw that as a motivating factor for people in 2022. And I think Donald Trump and his people, actually, uh, his team feel worried about that and that argument. And that's why you're trying to see them flip this narrative. That's something Trump always does. He'll take um, something that is being lobbed against him and somehow flip it on its head. And he's been saying, well, Joe Biden is a real threat to democracy. And right. and I know that, sadly, a lot of Republicans actually believe that because they disagree with the policies of the Biden administration. Right. But this has been something that I have said um, before, and I'll say it again, is that I can disagree with the policies of Joe Biden, but I can acknowledge that he is someone who will uphold our Constitution. I cannot say the same for Donald Trump. So if those are my options in 2020, then I really have no choice but to um, support Joe Biden. And not even to support him. I will happily support yeah. him and do everything I can to make sure that we defeat Donald Trump.
1: Adam Kinzinger has said much the same thing. He said that in 2020, faced with a choice of Trump and Biden, he voted for Biden. He's a Republican, whatever that means. Uh, he's a conservative. He is never going to be a Democrat, but he voted for Joe Biden. And he said if it's Trump and Biden again in to- November of 2024, he will vote for Biden again. <sighs> Let's go back to the phone lines. Um, Paul is on the line from Seattle, our good friend and Sunday evening radio host, Paul from Seattle. Hey, Paul, how are you today?
9: Hi, Joan. You know, I have in it. also said that Donald Trump is a smelly old man, that. Yeah, he, he, eats, he said that
1: he, is, he actually does smell. He smells well. <laughs> Adam Kinzinger yeah. tried to describe the smell. Let's just say it, um, it was not a pleasant smell. And he said the guy he said, I'm not just saying that to like be, you know, pejorative and make fun of him. He said the guy actually smells.
9: Yeah, because. If you eat McDonald's, you know, Big Mac with bacon cheeseburger every day, you're going to smell like rotting garbage. You're going to smell like junk food. I mean, you know, I I know this because when I was in graduate school, I had a girlfriend who was, she uh, had lived in Indonesia because her former husband was a political science professor and he was studying there. And she said that the people in Asia, Indonesia and Asia, think that Americans smell like rancid meat. And I said, really? We do? She said, yeah, because we eat so much meat. And they don't eat that much meat. So what you, you do smell like what you eat. And if you eat mm-hmm. you, if do. you eat fast food every day, you're going to smell like rotting garbage. So, therefore, my, I'm just, I, I haven't heard anybody except for you, John, sound as irritated as I am about our court, our justice system, our Supreme Court, and, and all of our federal courts. They are defending a guy who smells like a pile of rotting gar- garbage. Um, and he, th- this is, they're not even trying to hide the ball. Now Donald Trump says, he, he's on the campaign trail. I, I'm being indicted for you. Like he's mm. the Messiah that's taking mm-hmm. our nail. And like, well, wait, what, first of all, what did we do <laughs> that we shouldn't be indicted? But even if we were any of us who are, I don't know if he means everybody or black people who deserve to be indicted, he's being <laughs> indicted to them. I mean, his messages are a little confused, but any of us that might be indicted, let's say, um,
1: I don't think we'd be getting the treatment that he's getting. Oh, my God. You want to talk about preferential treatment? Do you show me one prosecutor or one court that hasn't bent over backwards to give him the benefit of every single doubt and every advantage? Doubt. It's It's really... It's another thing that makes me very irritated, Paul.
9: Well, it, the right to speedy trial is for the people, too. It's yes. not just it's not just for the convenience of the defendant, who, by the way, is out on bond in all four criminal cases indefinitely. Yeah. No, if you look if you want extra time. The courts can say, yeah, okay, we'll give you extra time, but you're going to be in custody while you're yeah. while your uh, lawyers you are be. figuring that out. You
1: would be in custody?
9: Yes. I'll tell you what. Uh, you look at any murder case that's been going, that's been protracted, um, for instance, that in Michigan, that the school shooting that Crombley, the parents mm-hmm. and the and the shooter, they were in jail all that time. They were in yeah. jail. So, yep. no, if you want all this. And then there's the other thing. I'm not sure what the courts are. What immunity are they considering? Because the March 25th trial in New York, that's a state case, is going forward. They didn't, they didn't put the, uh, the suspension on that. So are they considering that he is he immune from federal charges if, he's, if he was the president? Because if he was the president and he were in office and be immune, the states couldn't sue him either. So wait a minute.
1: Well, yeah, Is that's. This, I, I think that you've hit on a good point. That the only get out of jail card he's got, he's got in federal court, because you know, unless they're going to yeah. go after states' rights, which uh, would seem to they, be anathema to them, what, they have to.
9: Well, they have to I, leave they, the states, states alone. Rights, it seems like states' rights, yeah, when it when it serves us and when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But as uh, as I think one of our presidents once said, people I mean, well, don't know whether or not their president is a crook. Yeah. But, oh, I am not a crook. But he yeah. was a crook because he was a crook because he accepted a pardon. And the Supreme Court is preventing us from knowing about whether a, a prime a prime candidate, the, the, the nominee presents the nominee for the for president. One of the two is a crook they're not going to let us know. They're saying it's more important that he be unfettered in his campaign yeah. than whether we should know what the facts are about him.
1: Yep. Oh, the Supreme and, Court, the you know, the Supreme Court has sealed their reputation with this decision to hear the immunity case and to hear it in such in such a slow fashion. Oh, you have 3 weeks. Uh, to give us. A, and then you have three weeks to reply. And then there's another week to reply to that. And then we'll hear arguments. And then we don't have to let our decision out until pretty much July 1st. And uh, so, you know, we're whether or not we find he's got immunity or not, we're pretty much going to put our thumb on the scales to make sure this guy does not Get a trial in Washington D.C. before the election. Thank you very much, right. Supreme Court.
9: And really, this all this whole immunity thing, this should be coming after. Uh, there's a, either a, a conviction. If there's a conviction, let him pursue that appeal that I was immune, rather than just drag it out and say, "Well, you know, it, it, this is this is where that where the right to speedy trial is." is uh, forfeited we all be in jail yeah the other thing is I think and I want to talk about this on Sunday is what are the options in court reform uh, in terms of one of the things I I don't like is just expanding the the number of justices on the court because you can expand it to a hundred as soon as it gets to be 51 to 50 in favor of one side it's it's packed again I, I call it Unpacking the court by expanding it, and I have a kind of a, I think a clever way of doing this, and this would be involved. I would I would raise it to fifteen, but we would still select benches that we hear cases would still be of nine, and so you'd be selecting nine out of fifteen, in which there are many many permutations of how many benches you could select from fifteen. There's actually more than five thousand combinations and only one of them would be the same as what the the court is now and that way you'd always have a different mix of justices because these guys are set, they're not even trying to hide it and and then you got this it, it shouldn't even be something the fact that down in florida this this judge down there this the loose cannon um the the allegation just just the the appearance the appearance of impropriety, she should say, "I recuse." I, I just because there's because he appointed me, and there's uh, obviously, but she's not doing it. And the Supreme Court, they don't, they don't give a rat's about whether or not there's an appearance. They, they just don't care. Yeah, that they're, they're or Clarence this. Thomas
1: doesn't care, and nobody can do anything about it uh, because you know John Roberts. For all his chief justiceness, John Roberts has no real power over his fellow no. justices it's almost nope. an empty title it really it really it, is it, it is I don't, I don't know what he
9: would and clarence thomas let me just say this about him people can get as angry as they wish about me but let's face it for all clarence thomas doesn't like about affirmative action he was appointed to the court because because he is black that's yep. why because and, and there's no and frankly. Joe Biden was the head of the judici was the chairman of the judiciary committee. If you want, if you want to give if I if I want to give him a slam, I would say letting that that debacle that circus of a uh, of a hearing, uh, which is much not unlike Brett Kavanaugh's, hmm. letting him uh, uh, putting him through approving his nomination after that, which we know was we can tell certainly in retrospect that it was all true what Anita Hill said, but l- more than that. Uh, when we have the the uh, the death of the first uh, black justice uh, in Thurgood Marshall, look, Clarence Thomas ain't no Thurgood Marshall, so oh I do The only reason any number of people could have filled the bill, uh, whether the, whether black or white. And here's something else: Did you ever notice this? Is that uh, the Republicans when it's their turn to fill a, a spot? Uh, for instance, when uh, Sandra Day O'Connor re- retired, they didn't feel compelled to. We must replace the first woman with another woman. Do you know who? You, by the way, do you know who replaced Sandra Day O'Connor, or who was supposed to? No, it was supposed to be John Roberts. Huh? That's who was nominated. That's who. That's who Bush nominated to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. But then Rehnquist died, and he said, "Oh well, I'll put. I'll make John Roberts the chief justice." And then did he say, "You know what? I, said, I didn't nominate another woman." He said, "No." I'm not nominating another woman. I'm going to nominate Samuel Alito, who's going to take women's rights away. That's yeah. how Sandra Day's seat got filled. It's disgusting. Sandra Day O'Connor's was seat was filled by two men, and the second one is the one who took away women's rights. That just makes me – so if you're, if you're not – if you're any more irritated than me, or now he's sick as I am – This court, this justice system, our federal justice system is just needs to be cleared out. Like, which is why,
1: which is why I think, you know, it's going to depend on how this election goes, because I truly believe that if we are able to pull off a significant majorities in both houses, I believe that even if he doesn't want to do it, Joe Biden will be under enormous pressure to do something about reforming this court. Something, anything. Um, it's just uh, he this cannot stand. This absolutely cannot no. stand. Paul, I got to I got to move on. I'm going to try hey, to get a couple of you, more callers in. Sure. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Chad is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Chad, thanks for joining the conversation today.
6: Hey, John, I got I- a quick question for you. So a couple of weeks back, you were talking to a woman by the name of
10: Carol Fidler about the voting maps and how Wisconsin is going to go about trying to secure, you know, the different voting areas in Wisconsin. But but during that conversation, you said, uh, and, and this is a direct quote from you, there are a lot of very, very red, dare I say racist, rural areas in Wisconsin. I'm kind of curious as to specifically where these red racist rural areas. I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking that our neighbors to the north would probably want to know
1: where these specific areas are. And then, Oh, come on. Get study, real. Have you spent in time in rural Wisconsin? Seriously? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have up close and personal. I'm not saying it's everybody. I'm not even saying it's a majority. But to deny that it's there, please give me a break, Chad. Let's... um um, let's move on to another call here, um, Alex. Uh, let's go to, let's see who we have. Ed is on the line from Palos Park. Hello, Ed. Go go ahead. How are you?
3: Hi,
6: Joan. Thanks for taking my call. I'd like to address the situation with the 14th Amendment. As far as I'm concerned, uh, we shouldn't even be going through this gibberish with Trump. Uh, knock them out. It's cut and dry. The 14th Amendment states very explicitly, if you start an insurrection or have any part of it, you are disqualified. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I'm, I'm wondering where that's going and and how that corrupt Supreme Court is going to weasel their way out of it.
3: Uh, yeah. Do you have
6: any uh, perceptions about it, Joan?
1: I think uh, that we have to deal with, um, with what is and uh, the state of things is that I, I agree with you. I think the 14th Amendment was designed exactly for an instance like this, but nobody wants to be the one to stick their neck out. Even here in Illinois, I don't know if you saw this week. Um, because there was a move to knock Trump off the ballot, and a judge ruled on that move to knock Trump off the ballot. And what she said was, um, yeah, definitely the 14th Amendment applies. He shouldn't be on the ballot, but, but I'm going to, um, basically make this ruling and then instantly like put it on hold until higher courts weigh in on this. You know, the Supreme Court is, is hearing this right now. Nobody, I don't think the Supreme Court can be counted on to say, oh, yeah, 14th Amendment. Yeah, good call. That's this is exactly what it was meant to do. I think the Supreme Court is going to uh, say, oh, no, 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 no. There's this. There's that reason you don't understand. Um, because what they do is they decide how they want to rule and how they can help Donald Trump. And um, then they twist the law. I don't think anybody wants to stick their neck out. I don't think anybody wants to take Donald Trump off the ballot for fear of how the how it would look. And I do think that he should be taken off the ballot. I think the 14th Amendment absolutely applies. I don't think that there is any chance That Donald Trump will be removed from the ballot. And I think the Supreme Court will say, oh, well, you know, it's uh, this is democracy and we need to leave it up to the voters, which is, uh, you know, because they say whatever they want to say. They twist the Constitution. They twist the law. You know, they want to they know they're Republicans in robes. They want a certain outcome. So how can we justify what we're doing? And I really feel like that's the Supreme Court we've got right now. It has nothing to do with precedent. It has nothing to do with constitutional law. Um, It has everything to do with them just wanting to justify an outcome. So, no, I don't think that there's any chance that any state will keep Donald Trump off the ballot because he is an insurrectionist he should be off the ballot because of that but i don't think he will be and um yes. i think it's um that's another reason we've got to have court reform we cannot it's like ellie mastall said at the be, at the beginning of the week ellie mastall is um was on cable news when the decision came down and he said you know people in positions of power, particularly in the Democratic Party, have to wake up to the fact that the Supreme Court is not a an impartial body making judgments based on the law. They are a conservative group, six of them, with an agenda, and they will twist the law, they will twist the Constitution to fit what they want to happen. And I thank you for that call, Ed. I got a little wound up. We need to take a break. We're going to be back with Peter G. and Greco right after this.
0: Joan Esposito,
2: live, local, and
0: progressive. The
2: reason that I listen to you from the infamous
6: other side, you'll call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it.
0: And you know what? I can respect that. I'm WCPT 820.
1: I am pleased to welcome back to our program the brilliant political strategist, Peter Greco. He knows what's going on at the local level and the state level and the national level, and he is here to share his wisdom and knowledge with us. Hello, Peter.
10: Man, you're the greatest hype person of all time. <laughs> Thank you, Jones. <laughs> it is God, always I, so I wish, much fun. I wish... Re- I wish my mom were still around to hear that. That would be beautiful. Anyway. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Well, maybe, you know, um, maybe your brother can give you a little more respect knowing how I value you.
7: Well, you
10: know, um, uh, we show our respect and love in the Gian Greco family in a, in a pretty menacing and, and, and horrible <laughs> <know>. way. So <laughs> You know, if, if you know you're in, let's. We always tell you know our kids. They they bring a girlfriend home or they bring a boyfriend home. If we start ripping into them, it means we like them.
1: Yep, yep. So i as long as they know more. that going in. Then, there's, yeah, so, Peter. There's so, in fact, so much I want to talk to you about today. Um, um, I you know, one of the things is there was um, a really interesting article. Uh, appraising some of the strengths and weaknesses of Brandon Johnson and his leadership and his ability to communicate. I have said for quite some time now that either he, he needs to work with a media trainer or maybe he's got somebody who's giving him advice and he's just not listening to it. But, I mean, I watch him. And, you know, he's a brilliant speaker. He can make people feel things. He can get people excited. But he falls apart when he is faced with criticism. Um, Sometimes he apparently feels any criticism is unfair. Or when somebody asks him about something and he doesn't have a pre-prepared response, uh, he seems to fall back on campaign platitudes and when he's tried to when reporters try to push him off of that um then he usually kind of defaults to a racial statement um and i i so want this guy to succeed um and i think a lot of people really want brandon johnson to succeed but it's like he's forgotten how to talk to people what's going on there do you think
10: well look, I, I think I think if you live in Chicago and you're not rooting for uh the mayor to succeed, then 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 <laughs> you really gotta examine why you're here. So I think and, and I personally, look, when it came down to Ballas and and Brandon Johnson, I mean Paul Ballas is a Republican. He's an anti choice Republican. I think he's a divisive guy. I think he was a horrible financial manager in every And and every school district that he ran was Philadelphia, Chicago, New Orleans. They were all the books were on fire. So I was, I was, you know, like a lot of people, happy that Brandon won. Want to give him the benefit of the doubt? You start looking at, you know, how you're running the city, and you know it's great that we have somebody who, uh, whose instinct is to unify and not divide, who's who's likable, who's positive. Um, He can be a great ambassador for the city. There's also just the blocking and tackling of doing the job. And that's where things seem to fall apart. And I think it starts with the fact, uh, from a communications standpoint, he never hired a communications director. They're horribly understaffed in the press office on the fifth floor. And, I, I, you know, they simply can't do the job. They are underserving this mayor. I think he's got a lot of talent But I think they've got to bulk up or make some changes uh, in the communications department because, like, a 22-year-old press intern would have known that at that horrible press avail that he had, that he was going to get questions about ShotSpotter uh, and that he was going to get questions about why the city backed off the $70 million uh, commitment to um, deal with the migrant situation. And yet the mayor was completely either unprepared or unwilling to talk about either one of those. And it's like, if you're going to have a press avail say nothing, you're probably better off not having the press avail.
1: Yeah. And then there was that um, highly publicized um event where supposedly to try to re- repair some of these communications problems he agreed to sit down with the sun times editorial board uh, fran spielman wrote in great detail about this and either nobody told him or his press person didn't know that those kinds of meetings are virtually always on the record it is your chance to answer questions and and make your beliefs and your passions known. And supposedly he walked, well, it wasn't, it was like a Zoom thing. And the first thing out of his press person's mouth was, um, the mayor is going to do this, but it's all going to be off the record. And the head of the editorial board said, no, that's not how this works. That's not how we do this. And then so they immediately like hung up and it was over. So much for repairing right. communications.
10: Well, look, there's nowhere in the history of the world has there ever been an off the record uh, editorial board I meeting. It's formal. You go in and you sit in. And not only is the editorial board there, they often invite the beat reporters in as well. Mm-hmm. And so you're usually sitting around a table with a half dozen, dozen people. And. It's, you know, it's it's not exactly, you know, the English prime minister, you know, going in and, you know, doing battle with the other side. But you, you, like, you don't go in there and just sit down and, like, talk about the weather. It's substantive. It's on the record. And for anybody to think that that was to be off the record. I mean, if that's... Is that an instance pure and pure, of the communications?
1: was Is that... Is that the fault of the communications person? Should the communications person have said, by the way, Mayor, just so you know, these things are always on the record? I mean, to ask yes. for something that they knew would be refused and then, yes. and then yes. end they're, they're, it.
9: They're,
10: yeah, and, and coming off of it, like, I think it was probably the right idea to say, gee, we just had a pretty rough press of bail. Let's go to an ed board, which has been pretty friendly to the administration and try to get a reset. That all made sense. When, you know, when they said, oh, oh you can't record this, it's all off the record, uh, that, that's ludicrous. I mean, literally a 22 year old would know who's never done press before would know that. And so I think we've got a staff problem uh, on the fifth floor where they're horribly underserving the mayor. It's also true that. Um, the mayor himself's got to step his game up, and I, I think he knows that. Um, I, I I don't think that he's in one of these situations which we had with his predecessor, where he's just, you know, believes everybody's out to get him and just yeah. wants to fight and be No, I don't think that's the case. I think I think Mayor Johnson's great strength is he's a unifier, and he's somebody that wants to, uh, you know, doesn't just doesn't you know play petty politics just because it's something that's fun to him. I think he's genuinely a let's get around the table and figure this out kind of person. And I think that's why everybody was pretty excited when he came in. But I think he's blown through a lot of that goodwill now.
1: If you were um, to sit down with him this afternoon, what piece of advice would you give him?
10: Well, I I think the next time he has a press avail, number one, you never do a press avail uh, or talk to a group of reporters unless you're making news, right? You got to have something before, you know, you go into the gaggle and they're all standing around and they're, you know, you know, put the microphones in your face or they're all on a on a Zoom feed, you got to have some news that you're making. Um uh that makes it clear that you're in charge, you're getting something done, you're doing what's in the interest of the city. And there's a million reasons you can do it every day. I mean, the floor and the city touches everything. I mean, when, when you think about State law federal county law it, it, these lawmakers all make the laws mayors are the ones where the rubber hits the road there's always something you can talk about so number one you got to have something to talk about positively but number two you better sit and practice um, you know with, they would call it a, a murder board in the White House um, where where you where you do a where you do a you know it's 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 you know campaign communication 101 where you Put the principal in the seat and you fire questions at him mm-hmm. because you've got to have you know the substance ready too. But you know, he's also gotta have commissioners who, who will stand with him. Uh Mayor Daly did that all the time. Um, you know, the mayor was you know, Rich Daly was by all you know, wasn't a perfect mayor, but he was very, very effective. Uh and the one thing everybody knew about Rich Daly is he knew he loved Chicago. If he wasn't an expert, he always had a commissioner at his elbow who could answer the questions for him. Um, that's always works. and and there's some there's some bright people who are in that administration. And I think they've got to put them to better use.
1: Is this what Jeanette Taylor, the Alder woman, was talking about a few months ago when she said, "You know, we progressives, we have all these ideas, but we weren't really ready for basically the nuts and bolts of of governing." And I know with with Lori Lightfoot, people always said part of the problem was because she wasn't a politician, she didn't have a Rolodex of people she could call and rely on and bring into her administration. Um, Is that what we're seeing here?
10: Look, all mayors have have uh, contrasting styles here. I think uh, Mayor Lightfoot was a prosecutor prosecutors are lone wolves, right? They don't work as a team. Yeah, maybe you've got somebody in the second chair, but their job is to go after people, push them against the wall and say, I'm gonna indict you if you don't flip on your buddy here. That's what prosecutors do, right? They are not people who get people around the table and say, hey, let's work this out together. So I think that she just heard DNA um, was not, you know, was, was not exactly what she needed. In, in the mayor's office. Now, Rich Daly was the state's attorney before that, but he was a state senator before that. He obviously came from a political family. He understood that how, you know, how you get people around the table and get get work done uh, and get things done. I, I think, I, I think Brandon Johnson, you know, has, has great political skills. He is a good communicator, but you know, this is, this is part of the problem when you have a 30 something a uh, person from out of state running the mayor's office in um, Jason Lee—that just uh, you know—is not careful and thoughtful, and they just really don't have a vision of where they're going.
1: Some people have said that the job of mayor of Chicago is just, frankly, just too big for one person. Do you? What do you think about that, Peter?
10: Uh, I—it's I, uh, a big job. And it's interesting when you go and run for mayor, um, that's kind of the biggest obstacle. It, it's really less about policy and issues. It's are you up to it? And, you know, uh, uh, when when Rich ran, ran for mayor, I think people thought, okay, here's a guy, he's, he's been a state senator, he's been a state's attorney, his father was mayor, he knows what he's doing, let's give him a shot. When Rob came in and ran, he was the outgoing White House chief of staff. He had, you know, been a member of Congress, but people figured, well, if you could be the White House chief of staff, you probably can handle this job. The last two mayors we've had, and, you know, Harold Washington, I think most people thought, here's a guy, even though he was just a member of Congress, and, you know, you don't have a big staff to manage, that this was a guy who had vision um, and was a born leader, right? So, they you know, and, and even Jane Byrne, to a certain extent, had this sort of you know, had been in city government for a long time and had this very "I'm going to tell you like it is" kind of personality. And I think those mayors were uh, successful candidates, and you can grade them on, you know, uh, a historical scale on how effective they were. But they they ended up being big enough for the job. I think um, I think that you've got a problem with the last two mayors we have. Um, both smart enough to do the job but maybe not big enough to do the job and just a a a a set of experiences um that just uh are are lacking and so if if you've got that kind of issue then you've got to surround yourself with 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 people who've been there and done that before and i think you know rich guidis was a good choice as as chief of staff but you know you got to look around the rest of Uh, the administration and start to wonder, you know, they've got some really strong commissioners there. They've got some strong staff there. There are good people who work on the fifth floor. I don't think they've got really um, anybody that really kind of fills that sort of get things done mode that maybe, you know, the mayor doesn't come to as a, as a former um, union organizer and a county commissioner. So it's just, you know, the city was taking a chance, um, turning the page, and and going with a unifier instead of somebody who was more of a lone wolf. And the, the price to pay was maybe not as much experience. Frankly, you know, you can also have a lot of experience and not be a very good manager. That's the definition of Paul Ballas. So I think the city made the right choice when it came down to those two. But I think folks are a little disappointed. And I think there's a lot of progressives like, uh, you know, Alderwoman Taylor who are like, geez, you know, we as progressives, we got great bumper sticker slogans, but maybe we're not very good at governing because you got to get past the bumper sticker slogan.
1: Yeah. You know, for a long time, it, uh, seemingly, it's. it felt to me like almost every time he was taking questions, somebody would ask about Stacey Davis Gates and, you know, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, which, of course, Brandon Johnson was affiliated with. And, you know, how much is she influencing you and do you talk to her every day? Um I was kind of surprised that it didn't seem like his relationship with Tony Preckwinkle was... I mean, she's definitely an experienced politician. She she knows people. uh, She knows how the world works. And yet I'd never heard people saying, well, you know, did Tony Preckwinkle call you today? I was kind of surprised that um, she hasn't at least the sense that I've gotten publicly is that she hasn't been the resource for Brandon Johnson that maybe people like me hoped she would be.
10: Well, and look, that was the choice. Um, you know, four years ago, right? That was the choice between uh, a steady hand, somebody who'd run a big government uh, and who had been a, uh, you know, Chicago alder and had been around for a long time and somebody who was new and different. And I think uh, President Preckwinkle, uh, they had some scars, right? And I I think uh, her her record on taxes was a real problem, especially on the south and west sides. Where whether it was the, the, the you know the sugar tax the soda tax, uh, you know she kind of went in on a you know sort of Mike Quigley Forrest Claypool um, we're gonna we're gonna cut out the fat and, and hold the line on taxes is how she got elected to the Cook County Board and then later raised property taxes. There were a, she had a real problem on on, on taxes, um, and that that really um, that raised – I think I think Mayor Lightfoot had the wrong read on what happened. She, she won overwhelmingly. I think she got seventy six percent of the vote. And what she didn't realize that wasn't seventy six percent voting for Lori. There was a big <laughs> chunk of them voting against Tony. And so this is this is the choice you get, right? you can you can choose experience. experience is always going to come with scars. Uh, or you can get somebody new, and they're always going to come with growing pains. And that's that's a fundamental choice when you're, well, I guess when what you're I'm picking saying a is mayor, that a governor, or a president. You know? I
1: know that Tony Preckwinkle and Brandon Johnson were close. I mean, he was a Cook County commissioner. She was head of the Cook County Board. Um, you know, there was no secret that there was a lot of mutual respect there. And I'm just surprised it doesn't seem like she's had more influence. Or that she, it doesn't seem to me, at least from what shows, that he has relied on her experience or her judgment or her suggestions. Because I can't, some of the mistakes I see him making, I agree with you, they're like rookie mistakes. But right. if he were, it, it seems to me that Tony Preckwinkle could have prevented some of those rookie mistakes.
10: Well, I think that there's always, even even the closest of political allies, there's always friction between the Cook County Board President and the Mayor of the City of Chicago. Uh, jurisdictional issues, getting people to sit around the table, and work together. Uh, you particularly have a lot of um, uh, discord when it comes between the county and the city on public safety. Right? You've got you've got a sheriff running the jail. You've got a state's attorney, you know, running the prosecutor's office. You got the board the board president who has an issue on it. Of, you know, how we're deploying, you know, these uh, the, the, the sheriffs that are in police cars, uh, which for years and years and years, you know, city of Chicago taxpayers paid their Cook County taxes. And those cars drove around in unincorporated Cook County doing nothing. They're finally coming back downtown where they belong uh, and helping out with some of the some some of the issues take take some of the pressure off the CPD. But I think there's just some basic jurisdictional problems with the way our. Uh, Illinois government, which has way too many units of government. We have like eight hundred units of government. The, the the city, the state, the state with the second most has like five hundred. So you get a lot of jurisdictional beefs um, that are problematic, and I think that happens even with close allies. But. Um, I don't know. I, I don't work on the fifth floor. I, I don't work at County Hall. Um, there may be more cooperation than there are than there is. I, I think there's a lot of people who look back at the election four and a half years ago and said, "Geez, maybe we have been better off with Tony Breckwinkle." <laughs> um, you know, let's 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 take let's take you know somebody who's run stuff before uh, and maybe is a little old school um, rather than somebody new. And I, I think what I worry about is that. Chicago is set up because the job is so big that we're going to have a series of one-term mayors uh, mm-hmm. the way Portland Portland, and Seattle and other cities have had. And it, that becomes very unmanageable, ungovernable. You just can't have a vision and stick with it.
1: That's very interesting because I suspect the same thing. And that's, I guess, partly why I'm so worried about this communication gap because, um, unless, unless Brandon Johnson can land this plane, I don't see any reason why he would get reelected. And, you know, what happens to a city when you see that kind of revolving door, Peter?
10: It, it, it's not helpful. And I think, I think if you look on the flip side, where you had cities that have been a mess and then get um, solid leadership, uh, look at Detroit. Uh, Mike Duggan is the is the mayor of Detroit. Uh, he just got reelected overwhelmingly, um, and you know, which is tough. I mean, uh, it's a tough city. But he started at the at the bottom. First of all, he, he was a guy who uh, always, you know, did um, weekly town hall meetings. Uh, now I'm not saying that this is what the next mayor of Detroit of uh, Chicago should do, but this is he had his ear close to the ground. And he ran the first time on a very simple pro- promise: I'm going to make sure all the street lights are on. <laughs> because for 25 30 years in Detroit, you had whole sections of the city where the street lights never even came on. So he just said, "We're going to take care of this one step at a time. All the street lights are on now. Guess what? Now people are walking." You know, there's more stores opening, you know, just like some simple things. He's doing a lot of other innovative stuff there, but was well, overwhelmingly he got all the lead pipes reelected.
1: Replaced. That's, that was big.
10: They're moving a lot faster than we are on that, that's for sure. And, you know, we're having this big fight uh, where uh, Local 150 is all upset because uh, the ICC denied uh, people's gases record rate hike. And they say, oh, geez, we're going to get all, the, you know, uh, uh, laid off all these workers that dig up the gas pipes. Well, they dig up the gas pipes indiscriminately, right? They just do it because that's how people's gas made six years straight profits. And meanwhile, you got people in Englewood, 50% of the people in Englewood are behind on their gas bill. Some of them all, the average bill is like $900 because they're digging up gas because they make, they make money. And here's, the, here's the kicker. Um, uh, The pipes blow up at the same rate that they always have. They're not any safer. So, you know, uh, you know, Alderman Hall, Alderman Vasquez wrote a letter in the Tribune this week that says we're digging up the wrong pipes. Let's hire all those union contractors and dig up the lead service line so our kids aren't poisoned with lead. And. Forget about the willy-nilly people's gas profit machine. Yeah, let's dig up the pipes that the gas pipes that are that are unsafe and try to fix them. But let's not spend nine billion dollars digging up the city and have the gas uh, pipes just as dangerous as they always said. Let's go get those lead pipes. That's the kind of mayoral leadership that I think people want. Like just go get something done. Cities like Newark are doing are doing this. Uh, getting the pipes dug up faster than we are in Chicago has more lead pipes than any city in the country, and it's a real problem. One, you know, there's no safe level of lead for kids, and it does permanent damage. So I think if, if you're if you're Mayor Johnson, they do have uh, the clean and affordable B- uh, buildings ordinance, which he's the sponsor of, uh, and all that says is from now on we're just when you when you build a big building in Chicago, it's got to be all electric, no more gas. And that'll that'll save people money, and that'll eliminate this problem here. And let's let's go hire these union contractors to dig up the lead pipes. So I what think if concept. you do things like that, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. But look, there's a lot of ways that this mayor can move forward. We do have the Democratic convention coming up that can help be a tr- page turner. If that's a success, um, you know, double-edged sword. If it's and- if something goes wrong there, it's going to be a problem. But I think there's a real. Uh, opportunity for Mayor Johnson to kind of turn the page there and say, hey, look, we you know, we had a great convention. We're digging up these lead pipes. We're fixing some of the things in the schools and you can show some progress and people will give you the benefit of the doubt in Chicago.
1: Do you think most residents of Chicago care as much about hosting the DNC as people like you and me and the mayor and the governor? Um, I'm not so sure they do.
10: Uh, I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> probably plan a a, a, a trip downstate to go to a state park or something with their kids, uh, or or go go visit their 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 family elsewhere because you know places are a little crazy. I, I, I do think there's a pride in Chicago when you land a big thing. You know, we have the NATO summit here. We've had you know big big. Uh, conventions at um mccormick place Uh, um i think has been great you you have some of the uh you know some of the other things that we've done in grant park with, with with blues fest and jazz fest and you know people are people are proud because chicago puts on a great show we've always been good at that um and you know i think let's just hope the democratic convention is more of a success like Lollapalooza and little less like NASCAR or things for a mess.
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's hope so. Uh, Peter, we're going to uh, pause our discussion and take a break for news. I'm talking to a uh, political advisor, political strategist, Peter Gian Greco. We are going to take a break for news and we are going to continue our discussion. Remember, if you would like to call in, and uh, be a part of this talk, 773-763-9278. We'll be back after the news.
0: Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Jonas Pezzito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Pezzito. You all ready for this On WCPT 820.
1: And I am joined by Peter Gian Greco, political strategist. Peter, we've been talking uh, local Chicago stuff, but let's, I was going to say, let's talk state, but actually talking about J.B. Pritzker kind of feels like talking about national politics as well. I mean, he's not, I don't think, as overtly. Uh, campaigning uh, to be considered for a Democratic presidential nod as Gavin Newsom or Gavin Newcomb, as uh, Donald Trump calls him. But he's certainly out and about and uh, raising his profile outside of Illinois. What do you think about all that?
10: Well, look, I, you know, the, the, KB Pritzker is just a great governor. He just is. Um, I, I think that he came in, they, they've they've got the fiscal Piece of it uh, put together. It's going to be a tough budget this year, uh, but they've paid down the pensions. They've they've raised the the bond rating. He's done uh, you know groundbreaking uh, pieces of legislation on um, clean energy. He's really starting to build a uh, an electric vehicle and and battery. Um, uh, infrastructure here where people are going to work. You know, he worked with Bill Foster and and the White House to help reopen the the Belvedere Chrysler plant, which not only, you know, which which Chrysler shut down, but they work with the UAW and they, uh, you know, they got the plant back open and they're going to add another thousand jobs, um, you know, with with building uh, uh, electric batteries there, too. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you look at people like, you know, J.B. Pritzker, and you, you look at his record, whether it's on jobs, the environment, uh, health care, uh, he's got a great record. Now, the question is, you know, there's been a lot of governors who've run for president who had great records and didn't get anywhere because it, it's more than just a conversation about what you do in your state, right? you got to be able mm-hmm. to inspire people and create a vision. I think, you know, that's probably not where the governor's strengths are. You know, he's not going to go on to light up a room um but you know this is a, this is a guy who i think does a really good job of his job he also is a good advocate for our party and he's been putting his money where his mouth is uh on on a lot of the abortion referendum uh big contributions to to the effort in ohio um so it's 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 good look and and gavin newsom uh you know he's got a he's got a <laughs> An email list that is literally gold, and when he helps raise money for Democrats, uh, he does a great job. Now. I think Gavin's got his own. He's a, he's a good communicator. I, 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 comes off as a little bit of a game show host for me, so <laughs> it's not my favorite. Um, but the, you got to have people who are out there fighting the fight and doing it. Governor, Governor Newsom uh, does that. Governor Prisker does that. Governor Whitmer to me, I think, is, is really, you know, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, really, I think, is, is, is the, You know, you're looking at, you know, 2028. I think really our ideal candidate. um, I'm a little biased because she's a client of ours. um, But I think that she's built a record uh, on jobs, on uh, reproductive rights, on and she's done it with a one seat majority. So, you know, it's easy if you're Gavin Newsom and you got a veto-proof Democratic majority in, in the California legislature, or J.B. Pritzker, who has a veto-proof majority in the Illinois legislature. What's really remarkable is well, Whitmer's done all those things that, that Pritzker and Newsom done, and she's done it with a one-seat margin. And that takes somebody who can communicate, somebody who's got vision, somebody who's wor- willing to work across the aisle. These are exactly the kinds of things that people want in a president. I also think she's just really, you know, smart and likable. I think she's, you know, the complete package there. So I, I feel good about our bench going forward, you know, but we got to get through 2024 first. And speaking of Michigan, I, can we just talk about the silliest reporting of 2024? I know we're only two months into the this whole, like, spin out of Michigan that, like, there was this great protest vote against Biden. Is the silliest piece of journalism I've seen in a long, long time. I mean, it is sorry. You know what Joe Biden got in Michigan? He got 81% of the vote. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Not only that, they had a massive turnout. They had almost 800,000 people. When Barack Obama ran pretty much unopposed in 2020. Uh, uh, in 2012, there were fewer than 200,000 votes. This was the only thing on the ballot. When you walked into the Michigan ballot, they handed you a ballot. And the only thing on it was the presidential primary. And yet, we had a huge turnout there. Um, And you start looking at the county-by-county results, and everybody's like, oh, he's going to have a trouble in... Wayne County, because that's where Dearborn is. And there's lots of, uh, you know, Muslim American voters there. He's going to have trouble on the campuses.
1: Oh, yeah. Big you Arab he, population. You, oh, they're so mad at him. Yeah.
10: Yeah. You know what he got in Wayne County? 78 percent of the vote. You know already got in Washtenaw County, where Ann Arbor is, where my, my University of Michigan is. 78 percent of the vote. You know what he got in Ingham, Ingham County, where Michigan State is. Eighty one percent of the vote. The silliest story of all time. Uncommitted in Michigan got about as many votes as Michael Bloomberg and and Elizabeth Warren got in twenty twenty after they pulled out of the race. They weren't even they had suspended their campaigns. And yet you get a couple of reporters whose editors are leaning on them for a story and they gotta sell newspapers and they gotta get clicks. And they come up with this thing. Now, this is not to belittle what's going on in Gaza, thirty thousand dead people is horrific. And if you don't watch the news every night and cry a little bit, there's something wrong with you, right? But this story as a political story is just ridiculous. And the journalists that have written those stories really ought to look themselves in the mirror and go, I really got this one wrong. Yeah. Now you want a real protest vote. Nicky Nick, you know, Donald Trump has got Sixty seven percent of the vote. Nikki Haley almost won a few counties, including Washtenaw. Mm
3: -hmm. That's
10: the real that's the real protest vote. If you want to write a truly journalistic, valid piece, write it about how Nikki Haley, uh, who nobody thinks is going to win the nomination, still got almost 25 percent of, you know, yeah. Instead of people, of
1: the vote. that's one thing that has puzzled me, because we all know that Donald Trump has a stranglehold on the Republican Party. And instead of saying, oh, my God, look at this, South Carolina, Nikki Haley got almost 40 percent of the vote. I think that right. should have been the right. story, not, oh, well, Nikki Haley didn't win. It's, you know, shame on her. It's her own. She was governor. She you know, and I'm like, seriously, yeah. I don't know. I don't see it that way. Apparently, the Koch network sees it that way, since after South Carolina, they decided to uh, take their big checks elsewhere. Um, But, you know, my attitude was, you know, for somebody who's got such such a wall to climb, I think Nikki Haley is doing pretty good.
10: Well, look, and, and here's the here's the thing that's really interesting. All presidential campaigns fold their tents for one reason and one reason only. They run out of money. Guess what? Nikki Healy's not pulling out. You know why? Because
7: she's still got
10: a cadre of people who send her 25 and 30 and 40 bucks, who are Republicans, who are dyed-in-the-wool Republicans. They don't think like you and I do or most of your listeners do. But they understand that Donald Trump has hijacked their party. The party of Ronald Reagan, the party that you know used to stand up to Russia instead of going to bed with them, uh, and they are furious about what's going on in their party, and they're willing to write checks to somebody they know is going to lose. That's a protest vote. That's a that's something that's lasting. And I tell you, if the Supreme Court does rule that um, presidential immunity uh, doesn't apply, which I you know, I'd be flabbergasted, you know, you never know with this Supreme Court. But, you know, I think if, if, you, if, you're, if you're a legal scholar, it seems like that's a pretty solid case. Then, you know, the one thing that really can flip it, if you go back, you remember those New York, New York Times state-by-state battleground polls a couple of months ago, which everybody flipped out about and should have uh, because it shows, you know, how much trouble the president's in right now. If you looked at the last question all the way at the bottom of the cross tabs. They asked if Donald Trump was convicted of a felony, who would you vote for? And every one of those states flipped. So this is a big deal. This this presidential immunity ruling, which I guess we're gonna get in June, uh, if they rule that 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 Trump has no immunity, which, you know, I think the DC Court of Appeals really, really that was a tremendous decision just from I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but just reading about it. They did their homework. They got it right.
1: Yeah, um, and they they wrote it emphatically. I mean, I believe the decision yes. was no, no, hell no.
10: Yeah, yeah, and it was and, and it was amazing. Both the for how incredibly uh, sound it was from a constitutional standpoint, also the speed with what they did. I mean understanding how urgent this is. So, you know, I was worried that the Supreme Court was going to take the case and then just drag their feet and let June go by and just run out of the clock. Um, the bad news is they're going to take it up. The good news is... It looks like they're going to have it done in June, and then uh, and then the case on January 6th can, can can go to trial, and we'll have a decision probably by August or September. So, um, you know, I would have rather seen the Supreme Court just say, you know what, the D.C. Court of Appeals got it right. We're not going to hear it, but, yeah. you know, the way, it, the way it works is it takes four justices uh, to, t- to to force a case to be taken up. So you can guess at who those four are, hey, nice you know, comments. Yeah, Thomas, Alito, probably, you know, Gorsuch.
1: Uh, oh, Peter, I'm, um, I'm not a lawyer. Don't pretend to be. But I heard one pundit say that, you know, the Supreme Court was going to help Donald Trump either way, no matter how they ruled, by just giving him um, more delay, more delay. You know, we're yeah, going to hear yeah. arguments— uh, in April, we're, you know, we don't we're not going to tell you when we're going to have our decision. And one of the legal experts I saw on cable news said that you have to assume that this is that they're not going to give their judgment to the last possible minute, and which would mean basically July 1st, we would know what was going on and they said jack's the earliest jack smith could bring a case after that would be october and he's, they said i can't b- imagine that you know even jack smith is going to want to start a trial that close to the election and i thought to myself really july august september it's going to take 4 months you think the guys not ready right here right now um yeah, do you I, think that I, was i wish i knew yeah,
10: yeah. I wish I knew more about it. Um, you know, this is this is this is a place where you know you don't want. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. I'm not exactly. going to do that. Exactly, that's um, what
1: I do. <laughs> but I, I, I
10: gotta believe that you've got four solid votes with Roberts and the three liberal justices, and the the question comes down to, you know, for Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett or. You know, maybe Gorsuch. I don't
7: know. Um, oh, no, you know,
1: I think, we, I think Gorsuch likes- is a foregone conclusion. I think yeah, he's I think a so member too. of the I Axis so, of e- Evil. Um but you know, we well, came little- upon
7: it honestly, you know. <laughs> but buffer. you know, if we're, they we're, do we're decide the worst administrator we ever had.
6: You know, if let's,
1: let's take this to its ridiculous conclusion, if they decide that Donald Trump is right and he's basically immune from everything all the time, what's to prevent Joe Biden from calling up SEAL Team 6 and saying, you know what, uh, there's a few justices on the Supreme Court who I think are guilty of treason. I want you to take them out. I mean, he wouldn't do that. We know he wouldn't do that. But essentially, if they give this blanket immunity, he could do that.
7: Yeah, it's crazy. It, it,
10: it's crazy. From a, but it, And you don't have to be a constitutional scholar. Anybody who's gone through fourth grade social studies class knows there's something called the balance of, of, of power and separation of power, right? And if you're immune from Congress and you're immune from the courts and you're immune from the executive, you're king, okay? Mm-hmm. You're not president anymore. You're king. Um, and, and that should be frightening. And, and look, you know, for, for all the folks out there, who have a problem with Joe Biden on the economy or have a joke problem with Joe Biden on Gaza or have, or just think Joe Biden's too old. There's something on the line that's bigger than Joe Biden here. Okay. This literally could be our last free and fair election. It's yeah. not an overstatement to say that. And so for all of our friends in Michigan who voted uncommitted, fine, we heard you, you had your protest vote. You better be ready to vote for Joe Biden in the fall because that's, Maybe the last time you you cast a ballot that gets counted, yeah, and it's not an exaggeration.
1: Sadly, so it everybody is, it should is not. have their
10: protest, say their say their piece, um, and look. The, and on Gaza, I would say a couple of things. First of all, the only way there's going to be a ceasefire is if Joe Biden works with the Egyptians and, and and the government of Qatar and gets it. Joe Biden's your if you if you are pro ceasefire, Joe Biden's the only one's going to get you a ceasefire. Joe Biden's the only one that's going to airlift. You know, they announced it today. They are going to the U.S. military is going to airlift aid into Gaza, whether the Israeli, whether Netanyahu likes it or not. Uh, And 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 thank God for it. They should have done it sooner. Uh, But if you really care about solving a problem and are just not out there doing a bumper sticker thing, then Joe Biden's the only way that you know is the best way that. Uh, You know, we're going to stop the bloodshed and save people who are starving to death. So that you know, this is this is the difference between governing and bumper stickers. You know, you you can you can come up with a bumper sticker slogan. It's a lot harder to actually do things. And this is a guy who does things. So uh, you know, this is this is uh, you know, we as a party, we just got to come together because this is much bigger than Joe Biden here.
1: I keep reading, Peter, uh, people are uh, expounding on the fact that, oh, Joe Biden better wake up to the fact that um, he's losing the youth vote, that young people are um, not um, are disillusioned with Joe Biden. Do you think that's accurate?
10: I, I do. I, I think that, you know, the eighteen to thirty-four year old cohort, they are different people. This is not the Obama young people, okay? They are they are culturally different, especially males eighteen to thirty-four. You know, this is these are the folks that watch Barstool, um, you know, and and, and you know, listen to Ken McAfee. Um, they are not liberal, okay? They they are a little, you know, they they they, kind of, they like the sort of machismo of of of, of Trump. They um, they push back a little bit on feminist culture It's just what I would call common decency. But you know they would say feminist culture. We 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 have a different cohort of people here, and I think you've got you know people who are eighteen to thirty four year olds who are more progressive or who care about Gaza and God love them they should. Uh, because what's going on there is a travesty. It's a, it, it's a tragedy. Uh, it's also the case that we've got a age cohort that is just not as liberal as the Obama youth were. Um, and I think to a lot of them culturally, they, they they look at Barack Obama the way we looked at John Kennedy. Like, oh yeah, he was a great guy in the past. Whatever, not relevant to me. Hmm. So we as a party have got to figure out a way. And this is not just you know. White males at 18 to 34, it's, it's a problem with younger black voters um, who sort of succumb to the argument a little bit, which is, hey, my parents have been voting Democratic for 50 or 60 years. My neighborhood still doesn't look great, you know, doesn't have a lot of opportunities or schools are not great. It's not. crime's really bad. Why should I vote Democratic? Um, and and I, think, I think we as a party have got to figure out, uh, and this, again, goes beyond Joe Biden, um, that age cohort is not a gimme. Just because they're young doesn't mean they're going to vote Democratic. And that's something we keep seeing it in polls, um, uh, and, and I think it's real. Do they, and we've is, got, is it that they're not going to vote at all? Because surely
1: they can't think that their lives will be better with Donald Trump.
10: Um, some of them do. Um, and it's up to us to lay out the case of why Trump's bad. And why a vote for Biden is better for their future. And, you know, there's a lot of choices that look, the, the Biden campaign also really needs to do a better job of setting up the contrast, which is to say, look, if you want a future where Donald Trump's the president, first of all, your your vote might never count again. But like even putting that aside, let's just do an economic argument and a personal argument here. If Donald Trump gets elected again, his tax policy is going to be another round of tax cuts where his tax cut, ExxonMobil, got a bigger tax cut than every man, woman, and child in the state of Wisconsin did. Is that what you want? Or do you want a middle-class tax cut that Joe Biden said? that your taxes will be lower, that somebody making over $400,000 will be higher? That's a That's a contrast. There's 21 million people who have health care because of the Affordable Care Act. Donald Trump's going to get rid of it. Joe Biden's going to strengthen it. Do you want to not have health care? And if Joe if, if Donald Trump is elected, there will be a they will push for a national ban on abortion. They will make IDF. Like they did in Alabama, illegal. They will take away contraception. You know, you're talking about 86, 88% of people under the age of 34 say, I don't want that. So the Biden campaign's got to do a better job of laying out the choice. You can choose Trump, your taxes will be higher, your health care will be gone, and you're, you're, you know, you won't have the autonomy anymore. Or you can pick Joe Biden, lower taxes. Uh, stronger health care and you'd be able to, you know, get contraception so you don't get pregnant and get IVF so you want to get pregnant. It's going to, mm-hmm. you are going to have your choice and not some have politician in Washington tell you what to do with your body. So it, it's up to this campaign and all the other campaigns uh, for U.S. Senate and governor and, and, and other races to drive that choice and make it clear to people what the choice is.
1: Do you think that then the strategy should be rather than, you know, uh, Joe Biden traveling across the country to basically say, you know, I built that bridge and and I'm you know, I'm a big union supporter, that maybe it is more (sighs) practical to just attack Donald Trump and point out uh, the the differences?
7: It's it's
10: not an attack. It's it's a question there. The Biden White House. And the Biden campaign has been running a campaign about how the last four years have gone. And what I'm arguing is they should be running a campaign about what the next four years is going to be about. Uh, We had the same problem with with uh, on the Obama campaign in 2012. We knew even though the president had brought the country back from the worst economic disaster since the Depression, People still didn't feel good about the economy. They didn't feel good about the last four years. So we made the whole campaign about the next four years. We had a 20-page economic plan for middle-class security, and we drove that message on TV, in the mail, digital, door-to-door, about here's our plan. Compare our plan to Governor Romney's. Guess what? Governor Romney didn't have a plan. And we we made the campaign about the next four years, and that's how Barack won. The Biden campaign has to do the same thing, and they need to do it on taxes. They need to do it on health care, and they need to do it on the Republicans who want to ban abortion and ban in vitro fertilization and take away, you know, you and your partner's uh, uh, choices on whether to have a family or not.
1: OK, that makes sense It's because it's a way to show the differences without necessarily just being negative, negative, negative. Um, right. I really hope that some of that breaks through with uh, the younger audience. Um, there was a woman I interviewed over the summer who was John Fetterman's TikTok whisperer, a very a young ball of fire. And I kept thinking to myself, "Man, I wish the Biden administration would bring somebody in like this." And um, you know, as as you well know, at the Super Bowl we got one of uh, we got Joe Biden on TikTok. I I don't know if it was exactly the the kind of thing that's going to win over the youth vote, but hey, it's a start, right?
10: <laughs> yeah, and look, I loved him on Colbert the other night. You know, putting the shades on and you know being mm-hmm. dark branded and all that. You know, you, you get, there there is uh, there is some art to this. It's not just a science of you know. Uh, you know, p- p- putting a binary choice in front of people, you got to uh, you got to you got you- you- to make it funny. You got to make it inspiring. You got to make it cut through. Um, and and that's 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 part of it. Um, you know, back to the court case, I do think even if Jack Smith can't get a conviction. If you if you keep moving that baseline number, that number used to be in the 30s. It's moved into the 40s of people who think Donald Trump is guilty. You get that over 50. It's like he's. It's like you've got, you've got the court case done. Um, so I think I think there is a reason for hope that just the inertia and all the conversation about the court stuff. Really doesn't help Trump at all because as that number ticks up one, two, three, four points at a time, uh, over the summer and into the fall where people just think he's guilty, there's just not a lot of people. If you think he's guilty of a felony, of a crime, of insurrection, that you're going to vote for him. And that's, that's been consistent even in, even in the polling that has Trump ahead in the battleground states, which he is. Um, let's not forget. It. Like I mean, we had the election today. Donald Trump wins, but I think this over time, I think if the Biden campaign can drive the contrast and just the facts of the court cases continue to go forward, I think it's going to put us as a party in a better shot space than we are right now.
1: Peter Gian Greco, uh, Governor Whitmer is lucky to have you. He is a wonderful <laughs> political strategist, and I always appreciate when you share your stories and your insights. Peter, thanks for being here.
10: Well, Governor Whitmer is uh, uh, lucky to have my partner Terry Walsh. That's, that's, okay. uh, that's uh, all uh, right. All right. It, well, he's the go-to there.
1: Okay. <laughs> we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty.
1: You know, every once in a while, our good friend um, Tony Fitzpatrick uh, says to me, "Man, there's somebody you really ought to talk to." And I almost, well, without question, I find those recommendations to be really good ones. His most recent recommendation was that I read a book called Swimming to the Horizon and talk to the author, uh, who Tony knows, Zach Mucha. Swimming to the Horizon is about Zach's experience working with the mentally ill, the psychotic On the streets of Chicago, he spent seven years working as the supervisor of something called an ACT program, Assertive Community Treatment, working with people with severe psychosis, substance abuse and other issues. He's written a book that is ostensibly a memoir uh, about his work with those using crack, suffering from psychosis and the people he found when he was a street-corner social worker. Um, but most of the book are these incredible stories of people with just unbelievable challenges, the ones that uh, Zach tried to shepherd through the system and tried to make their lives, I guess, a little bit easier. Zach Mucha joins us now. Zach, what a book! What a book! Congratulations.
11: Ah, thank you, Joan.
1: Um, I have so many post-it notes here of things I want to say to you, but um, the first let's the first several post-it notes just have to do with uh, some of the people that you were dealing with out on the street, and most of us understand that uh, a lot of the unhoused. Um, are suffering from different kinds of mental illness, but hearing their stories, having you describe their situations and you recounting your interactions with them, I mean, it was like, it was like you were presented with an unfixable situation. I mean, some of these people just, they seem to have so much trouble just functioning. Um I uh, uh, there were so many stories I don't know we could pick out any one of them but you're dealing with people who are barely tethered to reality in some places people who are sometimes trying to play you and use you I don't know how you lasted 7 years I could barely last getting through the book Zach
11: Ah uh, okay well my wife thinks that job was where all my hair went so <laughs> But you're right. I mean, the idea that this job was unfixable, I mean, that's, that's where the title of the book comes, comes from. I had, a really, I had a lot of really amazing clinicians on staff, but one woman, she's just hyper diligent, and she was driving herself, you know, into the ground because there was so much to do always, every day. There was a new crisis every day, and I, I had to tell her, we are not going to cure psychosis and we are we are swimming to the horizon we're not going to make it we're but we have to try and you know it was it was a it was a really hard job like you said it's an assertive community treatment team which basically means we're assigned to really be and this is part of a national model uh one team that's really like a hospital unit that runs around the city for people who are suffering and like you said are so untethered they're not going to come in for any appointments. And if they did come in for any appointments, they're going to be very disruptive to the other programs. So we were very, ACT teams can be very separate from the rest of the mental health system because these are the people who have been failed by the mental health system for years. And they, By the time someone gets to us when we were doing that work, they, they had really been you know, abandoned by everyone else. I- and the people we were working with had no social supports. They had no families, no friends. They were, you know, some people were sleeping, you know, in the streets. Some were, you know, part of my job was to go to hospitals when a hospital would call me. And I would have to convince this person to work with us when they got discharged. So we were, we were really involved with making sure someone had housing, making sure someone had meds, food. But you know, so many of them,
1: Zach, they would tell you, oh, yeah, I have my meds, I, I didn't take them, or I had my meds, I flushed them down the toilet. I don't, and, mm-hmm. I, and you hear this a lot from people who are suffering from certain mental problems, I didn't like the way the meds made me feel. I don't want to feel yeah. normal. I don't want to feel average. When I don't take my meds, I feel special.
11: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when, when let's say I, I'm, I'm the patient, and if my symptoms are telling me that, you know, I have special powers, or that I know things other people don't know, or the CIA is after me. The CIA is after me because I have, I have really special, important information. You know, it's the symptoms literally are a counter to the awful reality that someone has to live, in, live with, that they're in a flophouse room on Wilson Avenue, and they have to get by on whatever it was at the time, uh, $570 a month. And, you know, and but are the, the response to medications, yeah, the especially heavy antipsychotic meds, the side effects themselves are horrific. And they literally shorten people's lives but, along with well, then, everything that what happens. Do the, when mm-hmm.
1: the antipsychotic meds work... What is, what's the best case scenario? You've got somebody that's really untethered to reality. They've got these antipsychotic meds. They take them. What is the benefit? What is the downside?
11: The benefit is that it reduces the symptoms enough that the person can stay tethered to the world and have some interactions and build relationships. And and I, I would tell the team that, you know, Medications work. They work. Sometimes they don't. It's different for every person. But I would would tell the team it's more important that we build. The the medications are not as important as the relationship to the client. They have no one on the planet. You have to be there. You are on call 24-7 for this person on your caseload. If you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. Because the last thing anyone has, whether they're on meds, off meds, psychotic, not psychotic, the last choice any of us have is has is who am I going to trust? That 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 is all. That is the basic thing we can always hold on to. But we have, trust has to be earned. You know, it's why you know we actually had I had a banner in the office, and it said, "If you can't be counted on." You can't be counted in. And it was really a message to the staff that you have to prove yourself to your patients. You have to prove yourself to your teammates. And we had to back each other up. We had a lot of situations that were scary and violent. And, you know, so we really had to be there for each other and other people.
1: You say in the book, I got a lot mm -hmm. of clients who were described as, quote, nice by the referral sources and I learned this uh-huh. adjective could be should be taken as a warning. Uh-huh. Okay. Why? Nice doesn't
11: say anything. It nice is sort of an absence of any other quality. It nice yeah. It, it's you know, if I say Joan is kind, you know, it's like all right, then I then I have evidence to say Joan did this, Joan did that. If I say Joan is nice, that could, that could simply mean she didn't offend me. And the, there's a Buddhist monk in Scotland. And at one of his zendos, he warned everyone, no one here is going to be nice to you. We'll be kind, we'll be generous, we'll be patient. But no one is going to be nice. Nice people are, are just hiding, you know, hiding hiding their aggression. So ni- nice doesn't say anything, which is why I, I think it should be gotten rid of.
1: Hmm. I'm talking to Zach Mucha. His book is Swimming to the Horizon. It is um, largely about the seven years he spent working with those with the most severe mental illness, illnesses who are on the street. Uh, we are going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Zach Mucha has written about his experience spending seven years on the streets of Chicago working with the most severely mentally ill people. As he said to another mental health professional, we're never going to clear our caseloads. We're swimming to the horizon here. And that's what the book is titled, Swimming to the Horizon. And, uh, Zach, one of the things that uh, struck me You know, we always hear about interactions between particularly Chicago police officers and the mentally ill, interactions that turn violent or go awry, and a mentally ill person uh, ends up getting injured or even killed. And sometimes it feels like every interaction between a cop and a mentally ill person is like that, if that's all you hear. But in your book, you talk about a lot of these people who either they or their family members Regularly call the police when they need help or when they know they need to be hospitalized. And I guess what surprised me is that so much of these interactions are handled appropriately by the police. And I really, I don't know that you meant this, but I really felt sorry because, you know, we ask our cops to be social workers and therapists as well as peacekeepers. And you make it just seem like there are so many cops. It's like, yeah, we know this guy. We know which hospital to take him to. That um, that the that the interactions between police and the mentally ill are not always resulting in in violence or somebody getting hurt. Uh, I don't know. You know, you sort of take that for granted when you write the book. But so many of us only hear about the really bad experiences, and it sounds like. A lot of cops just get used to. Oh yeah, we know him. We know his problems. We know what to do. Is that? Would you say that's accurate? That most of the interactions are fairly benign or even positive?
11: I, I would say that the interactions went, you know, I don't know, what positive, but were at least nonviolent. Yeah. Because I and my staff were there. That there was someone there to help with. Help the police to to say what's going on. This is mm-hmm. this is what it is. I, we were really there mediating the situation, and you know, and I, and I agree. The police should not be they should not be making they should not be addressing all these calls. I, and sometimes they are definitely needed. I, I in the book, I there's one situation where one man was doing a really good job fighting the police, and I jumped in and I got tasered along with him, but. Okay, I jumped in, so it didn't get more violent. Mm-hmm. And, but I think because and and the police, you know, you're right. They they have not been trained to do this. And part of the book, there's a scene where I did sneak into police training for mental health issues, and you know, you see how that went. Just just <laughs> for the training, they were they were shooting they were sh- shooting the suicidal role playing actor. I, I mean, this is not how it should be done. So I I really think. You know, it's really important because the police already have a traumatizing job. They themselves. I mean, I couldn't imagine. You don't know if you're going to get shot at with every car you pull over, every door you knock on. So I, I totally understand the police point of view, and that's why I, I'm I'm a big proponent right now of the treatment, not trauma initiative, where it is trained clinicians mm-hmm. who are the first responders when family calls or a landlord calls. And and I'm not saying the police shouldn't ever be involved because if you know, if you're the trained social worker and you make a call to someone's house and someone says I'm suicidal, I need help, what do I do? Then then you'll you'll know how to help them get to a hospital so they could be assessed. But if you walk in and the person's ranting and they have a baseball bat or a machete, then you would you do what you do as any if as if you're walking into a McDonald's. You get out and you call the police. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's all the Treatment Not Trauma initiative is asking for. So the police don't have to make every answer, every mental health call. They should only be going to the ones where to keep something from getting terribly violent, to keep someone else from getting hurt. And, you know, it's, you know, their job is bad enough, hard enough.
1: You said that in the book, one of the things you had to learn is you had to distinguish between severe symptoms, addictions, adaptive responses to living at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, and sometimes just lousy human behavior. And then there's Mm -hmm. much later in the book, there's somebody you're evaluating, and you said, I didn't think the guy was mentally healthy, but I didn't see any psychosis either. First of all, for those of us who are lay people, how can you be you, what do you mean by, you know, he wasn't mentally healthy, but he wasn't psychotic? Explain the difference.
11: Okay. Um, psychosis would be delusions or hallucinations. Delusions that, you know, the CIA is after me or I'm Neil from the Matrix. Hallucinations being I'm seeing things that aren't there. I'm seeing, you know, ghost, demons, whatever. You know, there's literally this this aspect of reality that is being totally distorted and disturbed someone not healthy i mean i can't think of the passage of the book you're thinking of but you know I, i'm thinking about sociopathic behavior and it's you know and sociopathic behavior really comes down to uh, plot plan profit what do i want how do i get it do i benefit from it it's very organized thinking and you know it means if, if i hurt someone else what do i care I and mean, that's I mean, this is you know, this has been part of our political scene for way too long right now but the the person suffering psychosis the plot plan profit doesn't really work so well because because of the interference of the symptoms that are you know keep a person from getting what they want
1: You did this work for seven years, and while you were drawn to it, eventually you moved away from it. You're now um, a psychoanalyst in private practice. You're also president of the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis. When you were Mm -hmm. doing the work, you talk about being drawn to it sort of for good reasons and for bad reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about that and why you finally decided it was time to move on
11: well i was drawn to this work because it seemed it seemed like the most extreme aspect of this of this work and partly because i didn't know any better i <laughs> i was promoted i was promoted as supervisor of this act team only a couple months after i graduated school and i'd done a whole bunch of stuff before i even went to social work school i was not a kid when i was doing this but uh you know, and I also had my own class biases that sit-down therapy, and especially psychoanalysis, was just for rich people or the worried well. And, you know, especially running this team, I mean, we had therapists on the team. And I really pushed that, hey, our people, they deserve therapy as much as anyone else. So we were, you know, along with everything else we were doing, we were providing therapy. And I got very interested in the idea, and I sort of accepted, all right, this could be done and I, and I got very interested in this other thing that seemed very extreme psychoanalysis and I was able to figure out all right I don't have to this doesn't have to be only for rich people it's not I mean I was, I was wrong I mean it's it's the perception but I think it's really a valuable thing uh, this psychoanalytic training it's totally changed you know how I how I work and I think it's I think it's an important part of what should be an important part of training for people who are doing this kind of work with ACT teams working in the community working in clinics I mean because none of us had training really and it's part how of the do you train real- for
1: something like this I mean it's well I that's guess.
11: that's part of why I wrote the book <laughs> yeah I mean because there isn't there isn't any and you know the, the most inexperienced clinicians with the least amount of resources get thrown at the most Damaged and needy, needy population, where the most resources should be put, and so it's just this horrible thing where it burns out clinicians. A lot of people didn't last two years doing this wow. job. Wow!
1: I can. Oh my God! I can see why. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, um, I barely could get through the book reading <laughs> about your experiences. But this is an amazing book. It's called Swimming to the Horizon by Zach Mucha. It is just so eye-opening. We all think we know about mental illness and the unhoused. But, you know, this is is something that I think you are going to find um, opens your eyes to these situations in ways they would never have been opened before. Zach, I'm so pleased you were able to join us and talk about this. It's an important book and it's and it's really fascinating. I guess is that the right ah, word? Is, is that okay? It's fascinating? Yeah, yeah.
11: No, I, I wanted it I wanted it to be fascinating. I didn't okay, want it to be well some, you some cold text. Yes, yeah. good. Good
1: Zach Mucha, swimming to the horizon. Okay, that's gonna do it for me today. Um I think Patty Vasquez has a co host today. That should be interesting. Um, Have a great weekend. Find something that you love, something that brings you joy. And um, I will see you Monday at 2 o'clock. Richard Chu, of course, will be here at 6 a.m., so you want to start your day early with us. Um, Have a great weekend and good night.